0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Okay, I'm Peter Betke, uh, the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. And I'm here uh, today on uh, Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017, uh, I'm here with Professor Roger Coppel of Syracuse University, he has also spent time with us this year as the F.A. Hayek Distinguished Visiting Professor. Thank you, Roger, for agreeing to spend time with us this year and contribute to our ongoing research and educational programs, and thanks for agreeing for being with me today. Um, just as some background, can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in these ideas in the first place, your experiences both at NYU and Auburn as a graduate student in the 1980s?
2: Sure. Sure. Only too happy to. Thank you so much for having me. I I enjoyed my visit with the Mercatus Center so much, and uh, I'm real happy to be here today. Well, I I got started on this, uh, I suppose, uh, like most folks, as an undergraduate. I got interested in economics. This was the late 70s, and economics was taught in the main, in most places, as at Cleveland State University, where I was an undergraduate, in just an abysmal manner. It was Everything happened on the blackboard. There were no people. I I remember vividly my first economics course, which in those days was Introduction to Macroeconomics, and they drew the Keynesian cross on the blackboard in those days. And somehow, because the instructor had drawn those two lines on the board, that caused the intersection of those two lines to be where the economy would go. I couldn't figure that out. But I, I had also to take the second course, but it was interesting stuff anyway, and then I had also to take the second course, which in those days was microeconomics, and I was hooked. That I could understand. Um, at the same time, at the same time, they still had the equation disease. So, so, so I could see human action like a ghost behind all those microeconomic relations, but I couldn't see human action in those microeconomic relations. And a a visiting philosopher named Roger Breyer told me that there's these guys called the Austrians, and I should check them out. Uh, And I read Israel Kirzner's The Economic Point of View and was knocked out. This was it, because he was doing economics, which I had learned to love and hate somehow at the same time. He was doing economics as if there were people in it. And that that was it. I was sold. And very luckily for me, uh, NYU admitted me. I went to NYU, studied under some of the real giants of the uh, the profession and of the Austrian branch of the profession. And nothing's been the same since. It's been great.
1: It is uh, very enlightening, I think, for young people to try to remember that uh, it wasn't that long ago when you taught macro before you taught micro. Yeah. Uh, It's a key idea of the Keynesian revolution that – uh, change thought that you couldn't have macroeconomic microeconomic laws unless the macroeconomy was in balance; yeah. otherwise, the system would be haywire. And that has all that all switched in the '80s, and you know, nowadays they don't have that. But it sort of seems like it's coming back a bit uh, after the financial crisis. Um, and so, it's important, I think, to go back and stress that idea of the the micro foundations. And
2: maybe we'll come back to that in, in a little bit. But But I did want to ask you you're you're, you're right. They totally made microeconomics a special case that applies in the special situation, which we're not going to have unless the economic experts are in charge manipulating the levers in just the right way. Otherwise, there is no microeconomic theory. It was was, uh, shocking to to think back on that. It's hard. It's, It's important to remember
1: the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, <that's laughs> and, uh, you but, should explain uh, what you mean when but, you say that. But not, not everyone, uh, you know, uh, gets access to it. But if you go to Google and you type in, you know, the Phillips machine, you can see it, which was a bathtub. It had the leakage with savings, which is the drain. And then you had the hot water and the cold water it could be fiscal policy and monetary policy. And the point was to maintain the tub at precisely the full employment levels of output. And it's yeah. a great illustration of what they had in mind. But also who was turning the levers. Right. And and and, and whatnot, because uh, but it, it is. A-
2: yeah. If you if you Google. That's right. You know, the, 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 the textbooks literally had pictures of bathtubs in them. It's so funny. Um, and and, and the, the real there was really ammoniac computer, which was um, a, a series of, of chambers and sluices through which water moved. And this was considered to be an analog—it was an analog computer, and it was considered to be an adequate model of the macroeconomy, of the overall system. It, it's relatively simple. If you go to YouTube and you Google Moniac, um, you, you should be able to find uh, a beautiful video that's on that's, uh, that's on YouTube of the Moniac computer in action. Yeah. It's very impressive in, in, in many ways. Ed Phelps was the creator of that.
1: Yeah, I love, uh, you know, Mary Morgan's book, The World and a Model, um, because it goes through the various different uses that models have among economists in the history of the discipline. And there was an idea where models were representations. Uh, You know, they were built as machines. I mean, going back to some of your um, early work in history of economic ideas, there's, you know, a connection to the idea of the circular... Asian of the system in the in the, the um, uh, is that Turgot, right, I think, or who is it that did the the blood or whatever and uh, Oh oh well well I
2: mean that that's the physiocrats yeah. among whom um Turgot was one of the early followers. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so they have all that idea. All right, let's get back to your uh, NYU period because as you mentioned briefly in your education you had this fantastic opportunity not only to study with Israel Kirzner, um, and I want to ask you some questions about that. But at NYU, you had the great opportunity to be introduced to the old world. Yeah. Uh, that is through Fritz Machlup and Ludwig Lachmann. Um, I, as I, uh, I think uh, uh, for those of us who have known you for a long time, we would say that you, in fact, have the best impression of Ludwig Lachmann in the history of modern economic thought. We don't need to, <laughs> to go down there here. But uh, I would love to hear what you... The window in which these professors opened up to you to the old Vienna and to the London School of Economics during, as what Shackle calls the years of high theory, uh, which is uh, where Lachman was, was at. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about yeah. that.
2: Yeah, no, I understand you. But my, my Lachman imitation has been permanently retired. <laughs> Um, but I, I like I will, the singer
1: for Journey. <laughs> yes. So we now have to go worldwide and find a replacement. <laughs>
2: I will brag that I did indeed have the world's best Lockman impression. I uh, I will allow myself that you know that vain boast. Um, yeah, Machlup was very. Both these guys, of course, were very important. Um, uh, it, and, and one of the things that they they did for a young scholar trying to sort of you know reach the shelf is they showed him what the level is. You can't, you know, there's no substitute for that. Machlup was the real deal. He was a scholar. He was, um, he was one of the important minds of the 20th century. And um, there's no algorithm, there's no recipe, there's no formula to write down, you know, what I learned from that. But uh, there's also no substitute for seeing that level of scholarship in action seeing a, that kind of a mind in action so that was very important, just to know what the level is, so that was very helpful Lachman was extraordinary and wonderful um, He, there's sort of two things about Lachman that I would want to talk about He, said he was your equal, he was not your Uh, teacher and anything like a young person often thinks of the teacher, some authority figure, and you got to take notes, and you better be right. Lachman, in spite of all his very gentlemanly, old-worldly manners, totally gave off the idea, we're a couple of equals, we're trying to understand the world, let's sit down together and figure it out. This was hugely empowering for a young graduate student. And then he had a club which was also hugely empowering, although I have to say there's the, the, there's the plus and the minus on that. The club was expectations. He had this problem, subjective expectations. And this problem is just not addressed in the, the economics of the time. It was a dead issue. Um, so that meant if you picked up his club, you could beat anybody with it. Any any speaker, come to the MNYU Seminar. You could pick up the club that says expectation is just beat them with it, and you didn't even have to know anything. So it was hugely empowering. But, of course, it was also a danger because then you substitute. The danger was that you would substitute this you know, invocation of a problem, we have to think about expectations, for actually analysis of the world. So, 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 so you have to outgrow that and figure out how to solve problems and not just beat people with the club. But there was a time when I had that club in hand and was just unreflectively beating people with it. And I have to admit, I still look back on that with pleasure because it was it was somehow empowering. And it was and it was shaping for me because it put the problem in my head and put me under an obligation to think seriously about it and not just gripe about the fact that there's this big problem expectations we have to deal with.
1: Yeah, um, I want to just push you a little bit on mock-up a little bit because— um so I get the point about quality of minds. Um, it's uh, it's, it's uh, actually uh, inspiring when you think about the quality of minds that were in the Mises seminar um, in the 1920s because you have to throw in there not only Hayek and Machlup but also uh, Morgenstern, uh, Hobbler, uh, Schutz, uh, Felix Kaufman. yeah, uh, Felix know. Kaufman's a yeah, great Felix name. Kaufman. I'm glad you named that yeah. name.
2: Uh, and uh, so, you know, if I just may, if co- I may interrupt yeah. Kaufman, Kaufman is the guy behind Robin's uh, 31 essay. Right. Uh, right. It, it's it's when, when when we read in the textbooks, as we did universally back in the uh, 80s and 70s and so on, that economics is the science of the allocation of scarce resources. Think Felix Kaufman. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it's fascinating. I found in the LSE archives and I hope I'll be doing a paper with this with Emily Scarbeck Uh, because she was with me when we found it, the appendix that Robbins never put in the uh, first edition. And uh, it's a philosophical appendix, and it deals with all these different people. Because Robbins was very fluent in German, so he was very uh, deeply knowledgeable of that. His connection to Mises goes all the way back into the early 20s, uh, and he's tried to translate um, Mises' book Socialism um, into English and was arranging for that. But he also got completely enamored with Mises the person, but also his ideas, um, and the appendix is all about his defense of uh, Mises, and it's very similar to the kind of arguments that you one would read in Machlo, uh, which is a more of a pragmatic uh, position rather than a transcendental uh, a priorism. And uh, but it's put in very common sense language, which Robbins had going for him as a writer, and so I'm hoping to make a. A kind of a little mini splash in our community with this essay because he says um, uh, at one point he says um, if a prioriism means this and then he goes through the extreme interpretation he goes clearly Professor Mises wouldn't want to mean that you know <laughs> yeah. and then he goes on yeah. <clears throat> so it's yeah. it's a it's a very fascinating thing but I wanted to ask you a little bit about Machlup and the behavioralist debate. Because one of your early essays with Richard Langlois uh, tries to straighten out the interpretation on Machlup in a very persuasive way. It changed the way I thought about these things because Machlup is often presented to economists as a defender of neoclassical economists and the as-if. Yeah. And you explain the more subtle interpretation of Machlup. And I'm wondering if that isn't also something that needs to be done today in the modern behavioral Debates uh, to come back to that same kind of idea—the focus on the filter and rules of thumb, uh, thum- uh, rules of thumb, and whatnot in decision making.
2: I, I think that's a great remark and a great question. Yeah, uh, uh, Machlup was was a follower of Alfred Schutz, another great member of the Mises Circle, uh, and later a pr- professor of sociology at the New School, and um, with that should see in background, mockup was very clear. Your models have to say things about people that would be understandable and recognizable, intelligible to the real people in a real situation. Um so this is a kind of uh, a check on your model. Does your mo- can you tell me what your model says about what real people in the real situation would do? And once we've got if if not, then your model is correspondingly incoherent. And and, and and if so is it plausible is it intelligible would it be sensible to those people so so this is something missed in Machlup's defense of neoclassical economics that's exactly right um consider his uh you know the so-called Machlup-Lester debate um where he criticizes the use uh, made by um two, two scholars whose names I'm, I'm forgetting the the um uh survey literature uh-huh. you now yeah. yeah. Do, do so these guys went out and like you know, ask businessmen basically. Do you marginal cost price? Do you marginal yeah. cost price? I <laughs> said marginal what? Right. Yeah. But, but and and so they said, well, see, we we've, we've totally falsified neoclassical economics. Right. And Machlup made the point. Wait a minute. Read read that read the even just the write up of this report. and What do you see? People saying things. Oh, we do a markup, but of course the markups will be tighter in periods of brisk demand and so on. And he's saying, look, that's totally marginalism. Yeah. So this is a great strength of and and what people got out instead of the Machlup Lester debates was that we we shouldn't do we should. And ask the subjects, "What's going on?" Right. Which is so absolutely the wrong lesson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the absolutely opposite. the wrong lesson. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, you're right. Now, behavioralism and 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 um, uh, nudging and all this stuff today, right? It's absolutely there. It's making a comeback. And and you're right. We need to translate the the sort of old of critique to this new, you know, literature. We have to make the translation we can't just you know point to mock and say you got it but we ha- be, but but it does seem to me that a lot of the times this kind of behavioralist you know condiment and Tversky stuff it, it it imagines that we the theorists we're real smart and these these you know louts that are actual actors in the economy are not smart and we're smarter than they are right, right? so they're getting along with a simplified robotic model of the agent that's not actually you know intelligible to the real people in the real situation so we have to figure out how to bring that intelligibility criterion into the new literature. That's yeah. right.
1: So I, I think, again, that that's a, a, um, a very insightful idea that forces, again, explains why Machlup tried to devote a fair amount of time to methodology uh, was precisely because he was trying to, to fit in between uh, the scientific – fads of the time and yet get the intelligibility in there. So what Caldwell calls scientific subjectivism yeah, uh, kind of idea. And you see this in one of his uh, uh, really creative essays called uh, What If Matter Could Talk, uh, which I, I, yeah. I, I wish that more economists read uh, today. So um, all right, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, but with a very strong recommendation, everyone should spend some time with Fritz Machlup uh, and, and getting to know well, his, if I his can ideas. I just tag on a, yeah.
2: a comment on it. I mean, Machlup was correctly recognized as a neoclassical economist, as a, as a marginalist and therefore a neoclassical yeah. economist. He was also totally a Schutzian and Misesian. I think a lot of times that's that seems like a contradiction to people. When you when you when you dive into that literature, when you dive into Machlup and understand why that's not a contradiction, I think you're smarter about Austrian economics. You're smarter about neoclassical economics, and you're smarter about the whole history of economics, especially microeconomics, uh, in the '30s, '40s, and '50s.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, uh, endorse that completely. Um, at NYU, uh, before we get to your uh, move to Auburn. Um, you also were had the great opportunity to be exposed to Israel Kirzner and to Bill Bommel. Yes. And you have, throughout your career, contributed various times to the field of entrepreneurship. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how that early exposure to these figures, who in many ways are towering theoretical figures in that modern literature, um, influenced you in the way that you think about those problems. Uh,
2: Kirzner was is, is the bigger influence here. Baumol is a great influence as well, although not because of any interactions I happened to have had with him uh, when I was a student at NYU. I had a great class in microeconomics with him. It was fabulous. So I, I, I really profited from those interactions. Uh, but but I, it, they didn't shape my thinking on entrepreneurship. His JPE, Journal of Political Economy, 1990 article on um, uh, productive and unproductive uh, entrepreneurship, was an influence It's a basic you know piece of the architecture for entrepreneurship scholars today intellectual architecture for them uh so that's a huge contribution and and that influences all of us who work in the area um was hugely important and it's it's really that same sort of human action point with Kirzner that we're talking about people and what people do that robots do not do is they learn Kirzner didn't have the sort of uh, framework uh, and couldn't have used in his time when he was younger the framework of algorithmic versus non-algorithmic choice. Um, but you can pretty much capture Kirzner, I think, with that distinction. Are you a robot? Are you engaged in algorithmic choice mm-hmm. or not? And if not, what's what's the thing that's not an algorithm? The thing that's not an algorithm is learning. Huh. Okay. And, and then the, the sort of deep insight that Kersner had, it's not just, oh, people learn, but that they that there is this tendency, and it is, of course, only a tendency, to learn what it is in our interest to learn. That's alertness. And you can also find the same alertness, with the same label alertness, in F.A. Hayek's The Sensory Order. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that's a big influence. I think that's not adequately appreciated among all entrepreneurship scholars, there is still, I think, some tendency, although weaker than it used to be, for entrepreneurship scholars to want to get somehow the, the correct recipe, the correct algorithm for how you have a successful business, something like that. Well, wait a minute. If, if that were a sensible goal, we wouldn't need managers and entrepreneurs. Right. We'd let the college professors program their computers, and we'd run the system from there. But uh, Kersner exactly is showing that that's, that's impossible, that's a, um, a, a fantasy of the, of the sort of lowest order. Um, the trouble with Kirzner in, in, in within entrepreneurship literature is that p- people read or pretend to have read his 1973 book, Competition and Entrepreneurship, um, without reading you know much else. Mm-hmm. Sometimes without reading anything else, and even then they get it wrong. A- as you know, Pete, and as only a few people adequately appreciate, he's got a totally dynamic vision in the 73 book, but then he takes that sort of dynamic. <coughs> He takes that dynamic vision of, you know, the learning agent of the alert entrepreneur discovering new ends, means frameworks, and he embeds it within what was then the sort of standard, static, microeconomic right. model. But why? Because he thinks that was such a swell model? No, to show the, the orthodox microeconomists of the day that you can't explain equilibration, you can't explain in your own model how equilibrium is possible. You can't not invoke he, uh, the, 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 the entrepreneur, the learning, changing uh, homo agents or homo agens, whichever way you pronounce it. Um, so then people look at that and they say oh he just had a simultaneous no time you know and that's just a wrong interpretation and if you read his 81 contribution to the Mises centenary volume he's really very clear and explicit about that that's a a rather radical view of dynamic subjectivism that he doesn't get credit for in the economics literature among even many Austrian economists and certainly not within the entrepreneurship literature there's work to be done to make that clear to folks in that literature
1: yeah that's a a great uh, summary. I also really like the fact that you linked Kirzner's focus on the entrepreneur back to the human action issue. That, of course, goes all the way back to the economic point of view. But it's That's also right. evident in his debate with with, um, with Becker. Yes. Um, and it's also evident to use a Fritz Machlup uh, student with Edith Penrose's criticisms about the limits of biological analogies. Yeah. She wants to put that creative individual, right? The human being with purposes and plans at the center. And I think people don't appreciate enough the implications of that, not only for like market theory, but even things like capital theory. So the reason why Kirzner's essay on capital becomes important is precisely because it's about capital maintenance, which is an act of creative entrepreneurship again yeah. as well. Yeah. And so it's baked in all the way through as economics yeah. um, that you have this idea rather than robots that you have, as you said, learning um, in these in these uh, impact. And we have a lot more work to do to take care of that. So I think that's that's great. Let's move on to your... Um, we, I could sit and talk to you about Kirzner and Mock Club for <laughs> uh, all day long, but I want to get to... Uh, you also had the great fortune that when you moved to Auburn, To finish up your PhD, you got to work with one of the other great thinkers in modern economics, which is Leland Yeager. Um, And uh, Leland Yeager, of course, was one of the core members of the Virginia School uh, at their height with uh, Buchanan and Nutter and Coase. Again, uh, amazing quality of minds that are collected together. Um, But he was a major developer of um, what? you know sort of a version of monetarism in the post-world war ii period um and then you got to uh, work with him and uh uh, and then later on you edited a volume that's in honor of him as well and so if you could talk a little bit about your experience with jaeger let me just say one other thing jaeger is also one of these fascinating people who was a technical economist but also in i when i started my series on new thinking in political economy, he contributed the very first book, which is Ethics as Social Science. Um, So he was a very broad thinker. He addressed methodological issues, uh, you know, uh, foundational issues in monetary and and macro, um, and across the board. So just uh,
2: talk a little bit about Jaeger. Where do we begin? Yeah, the the, the Festschrift is called... um, Money and Markets, Essays in Honor of Leland Yeager. published in 2006, Rutledge. And uh, I, I think if you have any interest in Yeager, it's worth a look. Uh, one of the things that happens in that essay is, is Tullock tells the, the story of how he came to Virginia and really emphasizes the formative role of Leland Yeager in not only generally Virginia political economy, but in public choice theory. Uh, and he credits uh, Leland with having really lobbied to get uh, uh, Gordon Tulloch a postdoc at, at Virginia, which then led to his professorship, and with teaching him a lot of economics while he was there. Um, another sort of current theme in public choice economics is analytical egalitarianism. I think that's there in Yeager's in work. Of course, he doesn't use that label, but it's, it's totally there. Because what he actually does every time— is, is sort of two things he well one thing that be, that we can ha- has sort of two aspects he models every agent in the system there's a there's a huge error that we easily make that we don't model all the agents in the system in particular if I'm giving policy advice I give instructions mm-hmm. so there's an agent in the system the the, the policymaker that I'm, I'm giving orders to and there and therefore I don't I don't model that person Leland never made that mistake okay um, and so once you make that decision, you have to decide whether I'm going to— uh, and this is the sort of second aspect of the issue— you have to decide, am I going to model that agent as uh, superhuman and above incentives and so on, or as a person like any other? And, of course, the, answer is, uh, the question answers itself. you got to model the agent as a person like any other. Okay? So he was there right from the beginning with this concept of uh, analytical egalitarianism, of, of, of applying the same economic model of man. To the political actors and the market actors in the system, so that's something I think he's, he, that's sort of he doesn't quite get enough credit for. Uh, what he taught me personally, um, you know, I went to, I, I went to NYU. I was filled with all this crazy stuff, you know, verstehende uh, uh, psychology and um, uh, K. Menger, the son Karl Menger's great book on ethics, and uh, all the Schutz that I learned from Machlup and Richard Ebeling and and uh, others. Uh, so it really was very heady, methodological, philosophical stuff. Uh, and, and from Leland, I learned to not forget about just the details, the straight economics, to to not be trapped by the words, the vocabulary, the categories, but to look at, as Leland so eloquently put it, who does what. Mm-hmm. This is another thing I think he, he gets inadequate credit for, as you know, Pete, and you're one of the few people I think who probably who recognize that it, it was Leland who was first there with the with the notion that later bec- became identified as the difference between a clean and a dirty float mm-hmm. in exchange rates. Well, how, how, could, how did Leland come acro- ac- ac- across that idea? Well, by looking at the details. How precisely, you know, what does it mean to have, have, a, have a floating exchange rate? Too easily, we draw the equations or the graph or whatever, use a few words of vocabulary, and then we're done. You have to peel back those categories and look at what it's saying about who does what. Again, analytical egalitarianism. But you have to be relentless about it. So that's a that's a habit of mind, that's a practice. It's hard to like again write a recipe or have an algorithm for that. But when you when you are inculcated by a close work with someone who practices that that habit of peeling back the labels and looking at who does what, it really changes how you do your work. And of well, course, in, in, in a positive way.
1: I think that sort of feeds into uh, my next question to you, which is that um, it was relatively, re- you know, soon after you uh, began your career um, that you started to make significant headway on projects dealing with expectations. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, originally like your work with Bill Butos. Um, yeah. But then, in in many ways, I would see these as linking. Lockman, Machlup, and Jaeger um, into a kind of an interesting new mix. Um, and I was wondering if you see it that way, or is it just, and if you could maybe talk a bit about the theoretical and practical impact of the work on expectations and how it resulted in your
2: book on big players. Um, so great. Oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Um. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right, and it's great that you put Jaeger in the mix because uh, he, he does belong there. The
1: well, I'm thinking originally your paper on Russia that you did with Jaeger, which actually does invoke the big player model to study the expectations in in, in an empirical way and to see the disturbing aspects of things. Right, I mean, this is a is kind of you always had a kind of an unusual take uh, on that because to some extent, um, you know what. The way I interpret that early work was you were demonstrating the um, the negative results, right? <laughs> and uh, right. as opposed to right. you know focusing, but it was an, it was an avenue into the literature in money and finance that well, the, was intriguing. That was talking on their terms, but switching opening their eyes to this point eventually that I I never saw it before that way, but it really does open their eyes to this analytical egalitarian or behavioral symmetry point. The reason why they're missing it is because they don't have behavioral symmetry. They have these – there are no big players in their world, right? And so as a result, you don't have – them being able to disturb
2: the system, but anyway, or, like ra- I'm or rather, or rather, we are the big players, right? Yeah, right. That's that the point. That, yes, yeah, yeah. Right. That we that we that we put ourselves in the shoes of the big player, so we're not modeling the big player, right? We're just sort of you know somehow giving instructions or you know imagining ourselves you know to be somehow running the show. That you, you got it exactly right. It's that asymmetry of perspectives, that failure of analytical egalitarianism. Um, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. So late. So the first statement of the theory of big players was indeed the 1995 co-authored paper with Leland okay that's right so he had a formative role uh and and again there's this just sort of you know the the consistent analytical egalitarianism the the consistent peeling away you know attention to details details matter um just you know I had some ideas that were you know sort of Head in the clouds, feet dangling off the ground, kind of ideas that that were inspired by, uh, especially Moclip. Um, How do you translate that into really um, a statement about the world that matters, and a, an analysis of real of a real events? Without without Leland Yeager's guidance and help, I, I don't know that I could have made that translation. But we got there, and that's the ninety-five paper. So he was absolutely vital, and informative in that. The, the the problem, the general problem of expectations, comes again from Lockman. Okay, he just put his finger on it way back in 1943, and and he, I, I have to, I sort of hate to say it, but he himself, Lockman, I don't think made any real progress on that on the solution. The guy who gave me the solution was indeed Machlup, and it was another one of his great old papers. Why bother with methodology? So, so Machlup wrote this wonderful paper, in 1936, about how methodology matters. And he was talking to economists saying, look, in your models of the world, you're going to have these so-called ideal types. And some are going to be very anonymous. Some are going to be non-anonymous. The anonymous ones is when you have you know, many actors acting under a tight system constraint. And so there's just not a lot of scope for them to do something funny or different. We can be confident in the, in the outcome. Uh, uh, you know, the actions they'll take. Well, that's that's the case when you just need uh, uh, an anonymous actor, not a lot of detail about the psychology and personality, no, nothing like that, just a little attention to what the basic incentives and constraints are. Uh, but if you talk about somebody like a central banker, oh, all of a sudden it matters very much what that person's particular incentives are and, and crucially, how that person interprets the world. So that's a methodological point. That's a methodological point about like what's theory and what's you know, not theory. What's reliable theory and what's more speculative and conjectural. Um, the sudden insight I had, uh, walking down the corridor, I'll, I'll tell you, in, in Thatch Hall in Auburn University, from <coughs> Leland Yeager's um, macroeconomics class to a lecture being given by Richard Langua was that we can take that Mokwupian methodological framework about more and less anonymous ideal types and translate it into the problem of the economic actor because as, as the rational expectations theorists correctly taught us, as, as, as Muth correctly taught us, the, the economic actor is in essentially the same position as the economic theorist, mm-hmm. trying to formulate a model of the world, and, and that's what expectations is really about. Well, okay, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the rational expectations solution is not one attractive to me. The Machlupian solution is that there are ideal types of higher and lower levels of uh, anonymity. That for some of the actors in the system, we got to know how they interpret the world. For others, we don't have to have such a rich picture of how they interpret the world. So that sudden insight to bring the, the Machlub's why bother with methodology down to the level of theory and not methodology, um, that was my solution to the Lachman problem.
1: Yeah, I um, that's that's fascinating. I, I think that... Um, you didn't talk about it, but um, I remember reading the paper with Butos, which I think is even earlier than 95, right? Correct. Um, oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I did, I did I
2: neglect could, that the, the paper with Butos on expectations does invoke big players. That's back in
1: 1993. Yeah. And, well, the big idea there, at least the way I interpreted in my postcard <laughs> rendering, <laughs> uh, right, was that uh, Keynesian policies can create a Keynesian world. Um, And uh, this goes back to the way in which the interaction effect between the sort of policy regime and the expectations of the agents within the regime and how they behave and the interaction among them. And I think that that sort of is baked into your analysis that then later gets developed further in the big players as well as in your, uh, you know, uh, I think still, um, you know, it's kind of funny with timing. Because your Society for Development of Austrian Economics presidential address uh, gave people an agenda for macroeconomic study um, that actually had you um, given that, let's say, in 2009, you know, or whatever, (laughs) could have, you know, really excited a lot of young people about how to deal with things. But I'll... um, I want to I want <laughs> to come a, to that's the, a
2: charming thought I like that
1: yeah I want to I want to come. well I mean it has had an influence on the whole new young generation of macro Austrians if you think about Will Luther and other people yeah. who are trying to do stuff um, now but m- maybe but it, it nevertheless it, it had this whole sort of agenda in it and part of that was the issue having to do with complexity and computability and I wanted to to push you to see the connections between your work on expectations, your work on big players, and then another strand of your work, which in fact you've been pushing from the beginning, which is on complexity and, and computability. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that and maybe direction of you know future research that you see and how do we really talk about creativity yeah. in a complex adaptive system?
2: Yeah. Um, on the point of, of, of creativity, I tend to use the word learning and not creativity. Um, in my work with Stu Kaufman, uh, I I'm, you come around to the view that the creative element is actually the system and not the agents in the system. So social evolution.
1: Well, similar to the way you would say rationality is a characteristic of the system, not of the individual agent because of the filter mechanisms, right?
2: Yeah. I hadn't seen that parallelism before, yeah. but absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the biological evolution is, is highly creative. But we don't think, oh, well, you know, those amoebas had great ideas for how to be something better than an amoeba. Right. Right. It's rather that in what Stu Kaufman calls the adjacent possible, certain niches are opened up. And then it's a bit of a chance thing, which niches, uh, new, new biological niches get filled by sort of innovative organisms and which don't. But once that, once that happens then in in what becomes the next adjacent possible you have a new set of niches right. and so on so it's the system that's generating these niches and so
1: without I, the niches you don't have that entrepreneurial opportunity
2: right right it right. just
1: doesn't exist
2: so so yeah. we can imagine so you know are people creative oh gosh i don't know they're, they're creative in the sense that they're able to combine disparate elements together in new and, and surprising right. ways or 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 subdivide existing categories or elements in uh, unexpected ways uh, is there some kind of ex nihilo creation in the individual mind? Well, I don't know. Maybe I don't know how to say uh, to prove there isn't or something like that. But I don't need to assume that. I can assume that away and have all the creativity that we actually observe in uh, the social world. Yeah. Just just on the idea that the entrepreneur discovers new opportunities in the adjacent possible.
1: That's where the variation comes.
2: That's where the variation the
1: selection comes. comes in a separate. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right, right. And then yeah. so that's where the variation comes from. And then some of those new opportunities are seized up, or, or seeming opportunities are seized upon by entrepreneurs. There's a filtering process that determines which ones survive. Okay. And in nowhere do I have to assume that the Kersnerian entrepreneur is creating something ex nihilo. He is, as Kersner, I think, correctly pointed out, making a discovery of an objectively existing opportunity. But the opportunities are endogenous to the system over time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let me push you back again on this connection between the way that you see. So in your mind, do you see a link between all your oh, yeah. projects over the years or are these, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, let's just start. So, you you know, you were very successful early on in your career and published a history of thought, you know, paper in, in Journal of Economic Perspectives, which captured, you know, some citations all the professional legitimacy kind of things right but there's an argument that you're making in there about what Ross is all about and and whatnot right and then there's arguments that then are connected to complex systems issues of computability this relates also to big players part of the reason why you have this constraint uh in the analytical egalitarianism (laughs) is precisely because you're not willing to make the omniscient benevolent point which would in fact erase computability problems, right? right? You're building it, baking it in. So to me, I think there's like a big connection in the COPL system or worldview. I think that's correct. But uh, yeah, so, and and also like we're, uh, like one of the things that you've done is that we're at George Mason. We have a very fortunate thing here in that we have one of the leading centers for, uh, you know, complex adaptive or agent-based okay. models you've, with you've, Rob Axtell. You've got and, Rob
2: Axtell, uh, who was a student of Herbert Simon yeah. and sure knows his com- complexity.
1: Right, and he, you know, he, he, with Josh Epstein, wrote the sort of main book Skate about the book. building, yeah. building artificial societies from the bottom up, and we have the Center for Social Complexity, and many of our students that you've interacted with exist in both of these worlds uh, kind of idea. so I was hoping that maybe you could address future research an impact, but then how is it that, rather than that research being just um, social complexity, that it's cop-lupian? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, how is that not just complexity <laughs> theory? How is it somehow <coughs> that's cop Well, I mean, uh, partly I just, you know, part of my interest in complexity and computability is, is autonomous. I, I was uh, an econ math double major in uh, as an undergraduate and read with, at the time, rather dim understanding, the famous paper, 1931, Kurt Gödel, which got the whole computability idea going. Uh, so I just sort of always knew that was there and important. But then it comes up again with, with Hayek in a big way. So uh, one of the things that happens is, is people get into complexity theory. They realize it's important. And by that, normally the idea is it's this so-called Santa Fe complexity, okay? complexity theory associated with the Santa Fe Institute, one of whose original promoters was a guy named Kenneth Arrow. This is a very important uh, point in understanding how these pieces all fit together. I think. Um, yeah, what happens? Pe- people people get into Santa Fe complexity, and then and 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 often, perhaps typically, the idea is this complexity theory is going to give me a fancier slide rule, you know, a, a, a better computational power to um, uh, control the system. I think that's the perspective of an important complexity theorist in the Santa Fe tradition, John Holland. Yeah. But if you, if, you, if you recognize the link to Hayek and recognize that Hayek was a complexity theory, as, as, as Barclay Rosser does explicitly in his um, Journal of Economic Perspective survey on complexity theory, uh, now you're in trouble because Hayek drew the limits of knowledge implications out from complexity theory, and I've seen people travel that road become much more sort of um, uh, Austrian in their whole framework because they, they couldn't turn away from the Hayekian implications once they engaged Hayek from the complexity point of view. Yeah. It's very powerful stuff.
1: So there's all of that. Uh, there's also this. Let this me sp- push a little bit on this oh, yeah. because uh, this probably goes back also to your NYU experience. Uh, so I was, I taught at NYU in the nineties yeah. when, you know, after you, we were in graduate school around the same time, but Jess Abib was in fact, uh, you know, at NYU when you were there and Benabib is one, was one of the original Santa Fe complexity guys, uh, and his models had no connection to human purposefulness going back. Yeah. So I think that there's always was an early battle also between that because Holland was agent-based models. So they were not, so like, if you go back and you look at the original summary discussions, even Kaufman's first book, right? he sort of talks about complexity as getting away from micro foundations. Mm-hmm. Whereas Brian Arthur and another person who you've been involved with was in fact also building agent-based kind of models. And he is an example of someone who has become more, I think Austrian as the time has worn on. Um,
2: Is that a wrong history? No, I think, I think that's all pretty good. I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe you're right. That Kaufman was less agent-based than, um, uh, I'm just talking past about in now. the early. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's not a question I've engaged. Maybe you're right. I, I, I didn't see that, but perhaps you're right. Um, of course, my interactions with uh, Kaufman have been in recent years, um, although I've admired his work, of course, for a long, long time, including, of course, Origins of Order. Uh, we should probably distinguish, though, between complexity theory and chaos theory. Some people do, some people don't. I always think we should. Mm-hmm. I think they're almost the opposite. Uh, there's a whole question of the so-called decidability of These things from a kind of computability perspective, and it has been proven that that chaos is not decidable, which mm-hmm. means there's no characterization of the sort of equation system that's going to let you find know if it'll exhibit chaotic behavior. Uh, Ex ante, you just have to let the so system. You would unwind and find out.
1: earlier stuff more in the chaos and, and,
2: and, and Benabib's yeah. in the chaos tradition, uh, which I, I think kind of petered out. It, it looked like it was a cool tool, but then it, it didn't seem to take us anywhere. And I think you're exactly right. There was no learning, no agency in, that, in, in those complexity models, uh, in those chaos models, pardon me. It's almost the opposite. With chaos, you have a couple of elements interacting in what looks like a simple way, and then the behavior manifested out from the system is, is, is highly chaotic. It's, it's not orderly. With, with complexity theory a lot of times the produ- sort of predominant case is that you have many interacting uh, entities that um, whose whose interactions are very complicated and hard to follow and everything is nonlinear and yet it generates the aggregate behavior for the system which is highly orderly so they're almost opposites right few things generating disorder versus many things generating order yeah no it's it's let me, so hopefully maybe you can. If I may, just quickly tag on this uh, Part of the thing with computability and complexity both is the point is can you predict the big player? Can I model the big player as a robot? And the answer is no. And I think complexity theory and, and computability theory help to, sh- to demonstrate that, that the answer is no, has to be no. It's not let's try harder. It's that can't be done.
1: Yeah. So, again, it's another methodological constraint that actually has theoretical and practical implications. That's right. On that, that's, yeah. Uh, So let's bring it back down to, like, actual applied economics again. Um, (laughs) uh, Though I hope you'll talk maybe about, at some point, you know, feel free to talk about this future direction of research and your interaction with some of the people here um, that you've had the chance to interact with and what kind of maybe shape dissertations and stuff could take in that. So... But uh, I want to ask you about the uh, the financial crisis. So after the financial crisis, I mentioned already your um, SDA presidential address, um, which uh, tried to create, uh, have a macroeconomics based on bounded rationality, um, expectations, um, rule following rule institutions, following, yeah, the institutions. institutions. Yeah. Yeah. and these kind of ideas. But um, so we get hit with the financial crisis. and. Um, you write, a, a, in my opinion, a wonderful monograph um, entitled From Crisis to Confidence. I hope we can provide a PDF of it online for people to read. It's an IEA monograph. Um, but in that, one of the reasons why I um, found that so fascinating is that, in my opinion, you provide this creative and wonderful synthesis between the monetarism of – Fisher, Irving Fisher, and the explanation of the Great Depression as a debt deflation disease um, and the Austrian business cycle theory, which often are presented in contrast with one another. But when I, I was a, a student of Hans Senholtz uh, as, a, uh, as an undergraduate, and he's as um, strongly committed Misesian Austrian as you could find, and he had this tremendous impact on me. Um, and uh, I had to memorize his stages of the Great Depression. He, he wrote a little monograph on the Great Depression, actually before Rothbard's America's Great Depression that circulated around a lot of people and uh, whatnot. And, and, of course, Rothbard's book became the classic for the new generation of Austrians. And in Rothbard's story, he wants to contrast, just like in Senholtz, monetarism, Keynesianism, and then Austrianism. And so, but when you look at the history, um, I always thought the Austrians were talking about a different period of time, so they're talking about the 20s, mm-hmm. and right, and that's all of Senholtz's stages of the issue are all having to do with the 20s and what was going on with monetary policy in the 1920s. Fisher and then later, you know, Milton Friedman, they're talking about 30, you know, one to yeah. 33. Yeah. So it's a different yeah. period of time. No one in the Austrian camp. You know, Rothbard eventually would try to address some of these things. But in the normal Austrian story, you get the credit expansion in the 1920s. But then what you have is, as you know, the way Senholtz would talk about it, right, is that you get this trigger point where either the central banker has to continue to try to inflate and risk hyperinflation or they have to slow down, which then generates these other things. And the way that I always like the way that well, the way that I really like what you did in this book was you show that the uh, basically this uh, you know, dollar disease and this debt disease are like interacted with one another in this creative synthesis. And, and
2: they come from somewhere.
1: Yeah. And so, okay, so let me, so explain this, this synthesis, its relevance for the 2008 global financial crisis, and what you think is the future of macroeconomic research
2: and policy coming out of this. Uh, well. Uh, I, I might have, be able to say something. In 10 seconds or less. Yeah, right. I might be able to say something <laughs> about what the future should ought to be. Yeah. I don't know what, uh, the, the future, what the future will be. I, I feel some pessimism because macroeconomists are, are experts who work for states and for international ag- entities and agencies. Um, so, so they have a vested interest in the existing DSGE framework. I thought that the DSGE framework was really going to lose ground. It has not so much. DSGE stands for dynamic stochastic general equilibrium, just so the sort of standard, um, if you wish, you may say, neoclassical macroeconomic model. Right. Um, but I think I think I think it is up to people who don't want to be president of the World Bank to to keep alive a macroeconomic understanding that um, that doesn't support being an expert, but does support understanding the causes of these periodic. Crises and how they may be pre- prevented. So, so Fisher has this great story, and it's a story about confidence and about the collapse of confidence. And he makes the point that the it, it, it you need the, the thing that really causes harm is when the debt disease and the dollar disease come together. Okay. I think he's right about that. When you have an overleveraged economy, who, who that that starts to experience that sort of snowballing of of failures, which which induces. Collapse or further collapse, as the case may be, in the money supply. Yeah, that's very destructive. That's that that gets you what Hayek would later would uh, eventually call the secondary depression. So I think that's hugely important. But if you read Fisher's 1933 essay laying out uh, this debt deflation theory uh, of <coughs> crises, it's it's not quite clear where the gloom comes from that gets it all going, where the uh, lack, lack of confidence. You know why co- why confidence fails, um, <coughs> or why the economy is over-leveraged in the first place. Now, it can just happen, sort of organically. Uh, you know, technological change that's nothing to do with state policy or anything like that may may induce some sort of overoptimism. We we remember the tech boom. Now, I think that has to do not only with over-optimism, but also with monetary policy. But still, the tech boom had a big component of just <coughs> optimism about the new technologies that were happening in those days. So I think that can happen, but it doesn't give us the Great Depression or the Great Recession. It doesn't give us uh, crises of the magnitude that, that we're talking about when we're talking about macroeconomic policy. So the Austrian theory tells us uh, an important recurrent scenario that does give us a cause for the for the debt, debt deflation crises that Fisher explained, which is of course you know the, the monetary expansion driving the market interest rates below their so-called natural or Wicksellian levels. Um, so it's like we're filling in the miss, miss, missing original causes for Fisher that he doesn't that he's weak on the micro foundations, the micro foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Well I don't know if they're micro foundations actually they're just the causal foundations yeah. why, you know why do, how do we get in this mess the reason we got why in the mess I, because of
1: bad monetary policy yeah, the reason why I picked that up is that uh, Buchanan <laughs> who was a monetarist nevertheless in an essay called on Hayek uh, which is a tribute to Hayek in 1979. He says, now, that timing is important 1979 because the Keynesian consensus is breaking down, yeah. but yet rational expectations is on the table, but not yet quite there. Uh, we also still have uh, Lucas's original islands model, which is a price theoretic. And Buchanan puts his, his uh, finger on a key issue. He says, Hayek is the only theory of the cycle that warrants the name an economic theory, and the reason is, is because it is a price theoretic story, yeah. And so somehow the pattern of prices gave the wrong signals off that then manifest themselves eventually in the uh, in the Fisher story. I. I, I um, it's, a, it's to me it's a it's a kind of an interesting debate. Also, you were at Auburn, and so Roger Garrison is a very important figure also in your education. And uh, you know he had his little debate with Friedman about the plucking model, yes. uh, which again Friedman doesn't have. Like you know what what how Garrison put this is that the the uh, the data that Friedman is picking up is the trail of the Austrian theory. Yeah. You know so yeah. the right and so. Uh, But we've had a very hard time communicating these ideas, and I thought the way that you did in From Crisis to Confidence was one of the best
2: presentations of this. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that remark. Yeah, I I think there's one of the reasons that Austrians have had trouble communicating this idea is that we're somehow trying to say, oh, those bad old monetarists, and that's been a terrible error. So, and that's kind of implicit uh, or maybe explicit in your questions. I agree with that hugely. Uh, And now we have really an opportunity, because we have guys to name just one name, like uh, William White, who are taking explicitly an interest in Mises and Hayek, the Austrian Mm -hmm. business cycle theory. Uh, I guess I'll name a couple of more names. Axel Lianifud tells an Austrian story of the crisis. It's evident to many persons that the, the Great Recession is really an Austrian crisis. I'd throw in Raghu Rajan. Yes, right. absolutely. Uh, uh, oh, there's yeah. many names. we got yeah. Boreo. There's e- other yeah. names. So, we, so grab this, if I may um, allude to Ludwig Lachmann, we should grab this opportunity with both hands. It's yeah. there before us. We need to do a better job of it. Some people are in the Austrian tradition working on exactly this point uh, and invoking exactly this literature. We need more of that. We need to grab this uh, opportunity quite aggressively.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's uh it's important. I think, I think, uh, and when the history of Austrian economics in the twentieth century gets written, um, we might look back on that period when Buchanan's talking about in the late '70s as a missed opportunity with Lucas as well. Yeah. Um, but then again, you had real business cycle theory, which shifted away from again human agency and representative agent models and stuff. But you know, we could. We could go off in a wrong direction on that. So let me let me go <laughs> let back to my back questions okay. here, um, which is uh, the... Uh, well, one thing I, I would say is that I think that the characteristic that has always intrigued or in, excited us, we didn't go to graduate school together, but we met when we were both in graduate school, yeah. um, was is that we were always seeking ways to join a conversation rather than ways to... Uh, instruct others about why they were wrong and why we're right. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's, uh, yeah. that's a kind of a, that, that comes from this understanding, I think, of also a shared passion that you and I have, um, which is history of economic thought and methodology. You were a significant contributor to that literature. Um, like myself, we started our career half doing our other stuff and half doing that. Um, we also both moved away from it a little bit, um, but yet it's still in there. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk to the issue of what is the importance of these fields for the trained economists? And do you have any words of advice for young economists entering the discipline that may be drawn to the fields of history of thought
2: and methodology themselves? Well, yeah, you know, it's it's a siren call because it's so interesting. It just It just sucks you in. Um And you and you see when you go down the path of methodology and history of thought, you, you see a richness and complexity of thought that's often lacking in mainstream literature. That's what makes it so seductive. I, I think it's very healthy to go ahead and answer the siren call. Always, unless you're going to be, you know, a methodologist or a philosopher or a historian of economic thought, and that's just going kind to of how you define the, uh, uh, unless that's your path, you have to always remember that the, the work that you're doing in methodology and history of thought has to inform current practice. So you, you've got to keep absolutely forward in your mind, okay, so what? If you're not just, you know, exclusively focused on, History of thought and methodology as your areas of uh, scholarly work. Then you've got some other field, some other discipline, some other research project. At every moment, how does you know the what I'm doing in history of thought and methodology inform in some substantive way? My other research project, not how does it show that I'm great and the other people are, you know, not so great, but how does it actually change your practice? How what does it imply for how you address the mainstream in your chosen field?
1: Yeah, that's great. I think that. Um, so, I mean, either an argument an article had a great influence on me or it became a justification uh, for that, which is an article by <laughs> Kenneth Boulding called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? Oh, yes. And what Boulding argues in there is that we all do because Smith still speaks to us. He's part of our extended present. And so the idea was history of thought as a part of contemporary theoretical construction. And I think, again, you know, if you go back to your From Crisis to Confidence monograph, the idea of revisiting the missing element in Irving Fisher's very powerful story, and then filling that in with another you know, missing chapter in the history of thought. But to do what? To create this synthesis, which now maybe we can think about going forward, is a perfect example of that. But unless you go and read you know what fisher is actually telling the story the richness in his story you miss this element in it right and so i think that that has been true with your own work having to do with equilibrium theorizing mm-hmm. uh expectations uh and even uh you mentioned before a Goldil's theorem and stuff yeah. uh it's interesting you mentioned that when i was uh, starting graduate school um I think uh, maybe you might have read this book as well or, or maybe not, but there's a professor at NYU named Morris Klein and uh, he's yeah. a, a professor at Courant Institute and he wrote a book called The Loss of Certainty. Oh, and yes, it's about I remember the, that now. It's yeah, about yeah. the beauty of mathematics, actually, but what happens with the evolution of mathematics. And when I was in graduate school, um, you know, I was very influenced by Austrian economics. So, you know, the idea of studying, you know, formal modeling wasn't, at the top of my you know, uh, priorities. But I, was, but I had someone very wise who had gone through the process before me say to me, read this loss of certainty book. And I read it and then all of a sudden I started to get amazed by the aesthetics of oh, mathematics and, and the discipline. And then I kind of was able to like juggle that in my head between the two. And I kind of <laughs> think of your, you know, you're fascinated by these problems of computability Precisely because you're, you know, it's a very practical issue, no doubt, like you said, at the end, it puts stop gaps on some of our exercises of flights of fancy, but it also is the beauty of the structure of the argument. And there's something about economics and mathematics that has that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that mm-hmm. Um, I've always felt like you felt that way too i've never had that conversation with you but that there's something beautiful about this oh yeah
2: oh yeah and 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 there there, there's also somehow you're you're kind of making me realize more explicitly than maybe i have in the past there's something somehow the same here between sort of computability stuff and then the analytical egalitarian stuff because there's in both this problem of self-reference so if if analytical egalitarianism is meaningful to you it may be worth the time to really take a dive into computability theory because it'll even if you don't ever use any of those tools or even refer to them in your own work, it'll make you smarter about self-reference. It'll make you better at analytical egalitarianism, and that's only a good thing.
1: And also, to go back to the sensory order, it's crucial in the Koppel reading of Hayek <laughs> to see this baked in at the beginning. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, it's, uh, that's I, I strongly affirm that. You bet. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's the that's the re, one of the reasons why that book becomes so critical. You know, in in this sense of the way that we study the world, starting from yeah,
2: that book is I I have my read on that book as you know is is highly Misesian, uh, and I don't really see how people miss that. They yeah. think that it's somehow a deviation from Mises or yeah, something no, like yeah. that. Um, but he explicitly defends in the at the in the, in the concluding philosophical chapter he explicitly defends Verstehende psychology. Yeah. That, that's the exact quote Verstehende psychology. My apology to anybody who knows actually how to pronounce German words. By the way, <laughs> you uh, have to say it to the Lockman. Yeah, right. Come on, you can't do it without the Lockman. <laughs> no, it's been retired. <laughs> so 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 you know he just couldn't have been more explicit. And then there's other stuff following up on this where he goes back to the same theme and he connects that to this sort of uh, Cantor-Girdle-type logic. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's explicit in Hayek's work. How people miss it is a bit of a head-scratcher to me. I think it's because at some really deep, visceral level, we just think that Dilte Rickard, and all that Weber, and all that understanding tradition is somehow squishy, and math is somehow hard. Mm-hmm. And so it's impossible that the squishy and the hard could exist in the same space. But um, that, of course, is an error. I, I
1: just on this, I want to sort of put go on record because uh, you and I have uh, grappled with each other over <laughs> the uh, the sensory order and the way that economists go forward, and um, it's it's not and it's it would be wrong to interpret the terms of the debate in which you and I have engaged in as a disagreement on the substantive contributions. It's a debate about. The marginal benefits of economists devoting themselves to baking that in versus finding avenues in institutional research. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when in the context, I think, again, this goes back to something that I mentioned earlier. If you go back to the timing at which you and I were wrestling with those ideas against each other, it was at a time when I was coming off the heels in which you have Asamogu Johnson, Robinson, Schleifer, Vishny, and, and Laporta, and these people. And I was saying, look, you know, on the margin, if you're a young economist and you want to develop sort of high X ideas, you can go in this direction of institutional economics. Um, and you were going in the direction more of the computability kind of yeah. idea. I think both of them should be developed and they should be pursued. And in fact, I think there's a link between the two of them. In my. Um, book that I'm working on on Hayek right now I, I argue that Hayek went in two directions after the 30s one was an institutional turn which can be seen in The Road to Serfdom The Constitutional Liberty and Law, Legislation and Liberty but the other one is an epistemic turn which can be seen in Counter-Revolution and then the various essays um, having to do and then that ties into complexity theory and, if, and the key is the connection between the two actually and, and so I'll, it's I'll tell you what the epistemic con- institutionalism
2: yeah. I'll tell you what the connecting concept is the rule of law. Yeah. The rule of law. We need more work on a rule of law approach to macroeconomics, which right now, I mean, there's Larry White and not that much else. Yeah. Um, I think I think my monograph that you said some kind words about also takes a, a rule of law approach because the, 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 the necessity for the role of the significance of the rule of law is, is, is entirely a matter of epistemics, of what can be known by whom and right. how. Right. So 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 that's exactly the connector.
1: Yeah. And also then that serves also to to tie the expectations in a certain way and all of that stuff. Yeah. No, that's 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 a great, great point. Uh, Actually, maybe this will link again. So after (laughs) your uh, let's move on to this after your big players book, you started studying problems of big players of what we might call monopoly experts. Yes. And you begin with detailed studies of forensics. Yeah. Um, rather than monetary policy, right? This is an interesting twist, different bite of the apple in some sense. What drew your attention to the area of forensic and highlighted the issues you wanted to raise theoretically and practically of
2: monopoly expertise? I, I, I did not choose forensic science. Forensic science chose me. Uh, I was I, I came across the story of the Olin brothers and their friend who had been wrongly convicted of the rape and murder of the beautiful young Chicago medical student, Laura Rochetti, And they it got, after having been imprisoned wrongly for this crime, they, they got a straight DNA exoneration from the Innocence Project. Uh, and as I was watching a TV news magazine story about this case, uh, well, the, 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 the emphasis, part of the emphasis was on Pamela Fish, the Cook County forensic scientist who had made an error in the original case. And the suggestion of the journalist was that Pamela Fish seemed to be making a lot of errors, and they always seemed to favor the police theory. Um and I suddenly had, uh, you know, like in the you know, the way science happens in the movies and almost never in real life, I suddenly had a flash of insight. I know what the problem is. She's got a monopoly. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it turned out later that actually the correct production unit uh, b- both is, is, is the crime lab more than the forensic scientist. So the individual scientist matters and the crime lab matters, but the unit of production somewhat in analogy to it firm it's it's the crime lab so that I didn't instantly see when I had this this flash of insight but it it just wouldn't leave me alone that we had a problem here that people who favor a kind of market approach to understanding society may not probably be paying that much attention to Um, but it's a real problem and it needs attention and it needs a solution from somebody who's got that kind of a perspective so I had a sabbatical year coming up and Fortunately, it was a full-year sabbatical, and I did a dive into forensic science, discovered that there are indeed far more errors in forensic science than you would at first imagine, that it's a big problem, not a small problem, and that, there, that at the center of this big problem is monopoly. So that, that's kind of how it happened. And then the surprise was that it led to a general theory of experts, which links right back to all the original stuff about big players and everything, which is all about, to use Machlip's words, the production and distribution of knowledge in society.
1: Uh, um, so you have a new book coming out called Expert Failure. Um, it builds on all of this work, uh, but also goes in different, more varied directions. So it's not just about forensic science. Um, it, yeah. it, it goes further than that. It, um you know, tell us a little bit about the book and what you hope to establish with it and uh, encourage other people to pick up on the loose ends uh, to go further with it.
2: Yeah, I, feel, I, I do feel like the book um, kind of provides a context for new work that can go in, in all directions. I mean, I really think it's an enabling thing. I, I hope that's not just some sort of self-delusion on my part. Uh, the core of the book is, is epistemic, is, is, is a vision of how knowledge is produced and distributed in society. Everybody, everybody, everybody invokes Hayek's great 37 article, Economics and Knowledge, and they are not wrong. But how often is that invocation rather banal? Oh, knowledge is dispersed. Different people know different things. But to really understand why that's not a banal insight but a deep insight, why that is transformative of social science. It's not so easy. So one of the things I do in the book is try to really um, uncover what Hayek's theory of dispersed knowledge really is and, sh- and how we should really understand it and why it is uh, deep and not trivial. Okay. Um, and I think that just drives everything else. I think that's, that's essential to Austrian economics. Without, you know, without dispersed knowledge, there is no Austrian economics. Um, so I, I I hope that it, you know my treatment of knowledge in that book will provide a context for for other work on really any problem uh, in social science that you might be looking at. Um, and this one of the surprises for me in this book was before Hayek there was Mandeville. Hayek has a beautiful essay, Dr. Bernard Mandeville, where he celebrates Mandeville to the hilt. Doesn't make the point that Mandeville was was there with dispersed knowledge bef- and, in a more radical form, I believe, than Hayek g- gives us. Before Hayek, I don't think he was cheating or fibbing or anything. I think he learned it from from Mandeville without knowing that he'd learned it from Mandeville. And then in 1937, when he's in the middle of the socialist calculation debate, up that Mandevillian vision bubbles. And he writes it down in 1937 and thinks, I invented this. I think that's what happened. In any event, I think Mandeville is a better than even Hayek on dispersed knowledge. So that's kind of the epistemic foundations. That's why I think it's a book that may uh, speak to anybody grappling with social issues. Um, We have a problem of experts. Uh, The administrative state is sort of under attack today. Well, rightly so, I think, because that's the rule of experts. Um, So I I wanted to tackle this problem to understand what an expert is. Nobody has defined uh, expert properly, in my view. Everybody defines expert as a his exper- by their expertise right? But the trouble is We each occupy a different spot in the division of labor Therefore each of us has a different spot in the division of knowledge So each of us has expertise So everybody's an expert But if everybody's an expert, nobody's an expert In an economic theory of experts An expert is someone paid for their opinion <coughs> So it's a contractual role Not um, something about what you know and don't know And that turns out to open up a whole category of economic models that is distinct from principal agent models or asymmetric information models. Okay, And I try to sort of lay that out, pursue that, and show that it has implications in the book. Another thing, if I may be allowed to carry on just another minute, another thing I do in the book, right in the book I was confronted with the fact that nobody's defined the literature on experts. The, and there's a huge literature on experts. There's a huge literature on experts in science and technology studies. There's a There's a literature on experts in uh, economics. these guys don't know each other, they don't talk to each other, they don't cite each other, they don't read each other um, and, 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 and and you know uh, and not only in those two areas. So um, philosophy is of course being uh, an obvious additional area of philosophy of science and so on. So there's this big problem of experts, a lot of people are talking about it. There's been no definition of the literature. I, I like to think that in my volume, I've sort of defined the contours of that literature, a little bit mapped the territory. Yeah. Um, I want to go back
1: to a, a, a statement that you meant earlier about Maklup. Um, and uh, so you you said that Maklup uh, showed you the shelf. Yeah. Right? Uh, how high you had to go how on the shelf high to is do the that? Shelf. That's right. I think that's important because um, in a um, there wasn't that many individuals when we were growing up that had reached the right shelf. So they there were some mm-hmm. are the the masters of the old ages, right? but the next generation that at first, the first generation of American Austrians Mm -hmm. uh, was more content with uh, playing, let's say, a different game. Yeah. Right, which, um, and in fact, any signal of success in the traditional game, which is, I think, one of the reasons why Machlup was discredited—not discredited, but discounted, disparaged—you Disparaged, be know, word you're because he's for. a he's a president of the American Economic Association, he's the editor of the American Economic Review, you know, he teaches at Princeton and whatnot. He must have sold out, yeah. you know, to the yeah. old cause or whatever. Um, but that, you know, one of the things that was really great when you and I were first coming into this was we started to have a new generation of demonstration effects. Meaning that Larry White could publish free banking in Britain with Cambridge, uh, that Larry could get articles in the American Economic Review, that Rizzo could get articles in the Journal of Law and Economics and, and, and O'Driscoll in the Journal of Political Economy, Garrison in the AER and other places as well. Uh, Lavoy, uh, who we didn't mention earlier, but did you overlap with Lavoy at, at NYU?
2: I was a student with Don Lavoy at NYU. Yeah. Yes. We yeah. had no classes together. He was ahead of me, but yeah, I people. am proud to say we were students yeah. together. So
1: he was finishing up probably yeah. his dissertation when yeah. you were starting. That's right. But again, you know, Don, you know, doing that, and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's fascinating about your this <laughs> current line of work is that there's an aspect of what you're doing which has also generated displacement demonstration effect. Your work on epistemology, social epistemology, was in the top journal in the field,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: And and so yeah. that all of a sudden says, hey, you could work on these Hayekian ideas and place them in the top journals in the field. In fact, those top journals are begging, you know, for that yeah. kind of insight. And you know, this book is coming out with Cambridge, which is one of the top three probably academic publishers. Um, your your work has also uh, received awards uh, yeah. that are not given just not by Austrian our friends. awards, right? Yeah, right by other things. And uh, I'm wondering if you feel that these kind of ideas are in fact becoming more accepted within. I'm not saying they're the mainstream because mm-hmm. I go, I agree with you it, about the DSGE model. You know, everyone predicted the downfall of macroeconomics. We're beating our chests. We're begging before yeah. the queen. We're yeah. going up to Congress yeah. and saying sorry, and then nothing changes. Right, right in the way we do things. Right. Um, that's a different story, right? And, and yet people have invested a lot trying to say that economics is terrible, but yet we still, 96% of economists, after they have their PhD within six months, have a job. No other discipline has that kind of, a, you know. Um, but there is a kind of idea where you're part of a conversation that an earlier generation might not have ever imagined they could be part of. And I wanted you to, do you think that that's true? Or do you think that there's something
2: missing in that story well i mean are, are you playing the long game or the short game um there is now an opportunity to get in the conversation the conversation isn't gonna get turned on its head in the next five years um so but uh so, so if, if if what you want to do is like publishing the aer in the next five years well okay that's a challenge um uh, if It's possible. We have examples. You listed some. So it's a worthy goal. But, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, But you can exist, do a sort of Austrian research program, and have a voice. Um, Now, what about the long run? Well, it's very important to keep these ideas alive, to keep this alternative vision alive, that it be a real economic tradition and not just some dusty old tomes from the 19th Mm -hmm. century. Uh, So that when the moment comes, as I would say unfortunately it will, those ideas are ready to hand. Now, what do you mean unfortunately? Wouldn't that be a great idea if Austrian economics is on top? Well, yeah, except the events in the world that would make that possible are not events we want. Because we're talking about cr- catastrophic institutional failure it's going to provide the opening for Austrian economics to be back on top of the academic uh, discourse. Um, so that's sort of a, a prospect to, be, to dread, but it's also a prospect that we had very well better prepare for yeah. because the world will need us at that moment.
1: Yeah, my, um, I decided to do my southern address in the fall. is going to be on public administration and transformation of economics. And it will be very influenced by uh, Vincent Ostrom's work on the intellectual crisis of public administration, but also David Levy's work and and Sandra Pert as well as your work um, on how it is that when we move to this idea of economics, moving away from a discipline of social understanding to a discipline of social control, and therefore then the establishment of monopoly experts, which in fact, independent regulatory agencies are designed to be, Uh, And and you need to staff them with that transforms economics because you have a supply and demand function of economics and you got to look at like what that was doing. And for that system, like Vincent Ostrom talked about the intellectual crisis of American public administration for that system of public administration to reach a point of crisis is not going to be a happy moment. uh right i mean (laughs) in the the actual real world it will be a a kind of very difficult moment and it's and and that's a hard thing to sort of go to some extent we're seeing the fraying of aspects of that already and uh maybe we'll see more of it but i don't view it as a good thing i was just to ask a question in an interview earlier this morning whether or not i saw anything optimistic in the recent election in the united states and uh for the kind of society that I like. And um, I want it to be crystal clear (laughs) rather than like murky at all. And so I actually said, no, (laughs) like (laughs) capital letters, you know, no, Uh, there's nothing, you know, about the current system that I find, you know, uh, desirable, Uh, you know, uh, in fact, I, I, I view the rise of right wing kind of populist authoritarianism to be a very sad moment but I agree with you that that in the midst of that ideas, certain ideas need to be on the table just so that they're out there. But then, if we go back to our analytical egalitarian, or what the way David and Sandra call it, the rational choice theorist, rather than yeah. rational choice theory, theory. Yeah. Uh, that the rational choice theorist, it's we got to bake that into the beginning of this transition idea too. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: but it, yeah, it, it, Ostrom is a, Vincent Ostrom and and. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom are a great example because they were doing Virginia political economy but in, in, in the field of public administration. So there's that, it's very important that these ideas live in more than one home, not yes. only in economics but in public administration and I would say in, in, in entrepreneurial studies. And one of the pluses in entrepreneurial studies is that entrepreneurs are not experts. Right. There's no call for the you know with from within entrepreneurial studies for the rule of experts.
1: Right to have an entrepreneurial council. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, A council exactly. of entrepreneurial advisors. Uh, I, yeah. mean, I
2: mean, some of these guys actually think that way. You know, they yeah. want that. But 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 the overall the discipline is not appointed that way. So it gives um, more breathing room for analytical egalitarianism to inform your analysis. Yeah.
1: I just was on a dissertation at Darden, mm-hmm. at the entrepreneurship, oh, yeah. and um, and one of the you know a couple of the leading practitioners uh, in the field are on the faculty there, and it was fantastic opportunity to interact with them and and to learn from them in a wonderful environment. University of Virginia is one of the top business schools, and yeah. but oh, yeah, it Darden's also seemed place. like it was completely a breath of fresh air, the opportunity for young people if they want to go in the field of entrepreneurship, and I think. This should be a big selling point. I, I don't want to turn this into a an advertisement for the your your program that you're starting with Maria, um, but uh, I do think it's a great opportunity. And Syracuse is, uh, you know, arguably the top or one of the top entrepreneurship programs. And so, uh, the opportunity that could exist up there for young scholars to enter into this field with a leg up and and make real contributions is a serious thing. Maybe a few words about
2: what you have going on there and your plans? Well, we have the Institute for an Entrepreneurial Society. Uh, it is The it, the, the, the so-called Triple E Department, the Entrepreneurship Department in Syracuse, is indeed a top department in the field. Um, uh, and we have the Institute. And one of the things the Institute does is bring in uh, Ph.D. students, funds them. It's a pretty good ride, as, as, the, as the lingo has it. You know, it's a pretty generous package we offer our students. Um, and... Faculty, the faculty at the Institute for an Entrepreneurial Study are very clear that our, you know, the, st- the student has to follow his own course. He has to f- follow his own path. He doesn't have a choice. Uh, but the faculty, we have a clear Kirsnerian vision of entrepreneurial theory. So it's Kersner, Kirsner, Kirsner. And then for applied research, we also have a clear vision. There's this emerging, growing uh, field of entrepreneurship policy. And what's missing largely from that literature is Virginia political economy, is the public choice toolbox. So we have a vision of bringing that public choice toolbox, that Virginia political economy vision, to the 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 field of entrepreneurship policy.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! What a great great opportunity, and uh, and I hope many people uh, pursue that. I do think that this uh, literature and the political economy of entrepreneurship is a, uh, a very fresh area. I have a, a couple of these new centers have been popping up in various different places. And I've always thought that one of the problems is we always just think of it in terms of economics. And yeah. we should be thinking in terms of political economy kind of programs in business schools, like the way Stanford has as, as homes for people. And entrepreneurship would be a great uh, avenue in here. Um, And there are, you know, programs, uh, you know, starting at Syracuse, but also Baylor and also Oklahoma State. Um, But, uh, you know, and and as I said, the people at at Darden are very open to this. And Maryland is starting a new program. And Maryland's very important. And and American is gonna just start it. It's called Center for Innovation. So very, very excited about these things um, and and where this literature and these opportunities go. Uh, Before we go, I was, uh, I was hoping I could ask you maybe your reflections on our program. Uh, you've uh, you spent time here this year in the Hayek program, and you've had the opportunity to visit with many of our graduate students and participate in various discussion groups and seminars. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts to share with us about what we might be doing right, what we should strive to do better as we go forward, and just general um impressions of how we're uh developing our program here uh,
2: it, it, pete if you're looking at me to criticize what's going on with the Mercatus center you you're barking up the wrong tree uh it's it's a great place uh, it's really a, a wonderful place to be if you, you know if you get the opportunity to visit as i have this year grab it um what do you have i mean it's a beautiful physical facility and you have very important names around and what do you have is a community of scholars starting from highly established very important senior scholars to sort of associate professor type and assistant, down to phd students and master students all so you have sort of all the levels there of people uh, inquiring in a in, in, in sort of complementary but distinct research programs and perspectives interested in ideas i mean you walk you know, through uh, the the students have their carols, and you see all these books stacked up, you know, and little tags coming out of the books, you know, and it's it's fabulous. This is a place of ideas. This is a place where ideas are exciting. and this is a place where people work hard on exciting ideas. It's just a great place to be. I love it.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, it's been amazing to have you here this year, and I'm uh, looking forward to more uh, collaborations and the great success and follow ups to your work on, expert failures, and uh, what your next project is.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.